0: Thank you so much. Appreciate the worship team. If you want to turn to Revelation 5 and 6 today, Revelation chapter 5 and 6 is what we will uh, look at, Lord willing. And we want to talk about the unfolding of history. I think I may have mentioned at one time this quote from uh, Barry Goldwater, who said, Those who seek absolute power, even though they seek it to do what, what they regard as good, are simply demanding the right to enforce their own version of heaven on earth. And let me remind you, they are the very ones who always create the most hellish tyrannies. Absolute power does corrupt, and those who seek it must be suspect and must be opposed. In our day and time, there's a lot of, th- lot of things going on, whether it's in Australia or Canada or Europe or even in our own country, Uh, that smacks of authoritarianism or even uh, what we might call tyranny in terms of uh, governments imposing lockdowns and various mandates and things on people that uh, many people would question whether or not uh, they are overstepping uh, their boundaries and taking away freedoms that should not be taken away and things like that. So there's a lot of talk about what's going on in our world with regard to the kind of thing that Barry Goldwater is talking about. But what I want to highlight is he talks about the fact that even when governments begin to take away people's freedoms and begin to exercise even more authority and even become tyrannical, they always do it for stated good reasons that it's always for the good, security, safety of their people. And he also mentions the fact that there's the implication in their pursuit of the good that they're trying to enforce their own version of heaven on earth so that they believe that by exercising authority they can pursue the good of society and create heaven on earth. It's very, very interesting in light of Um, what we've talked about before, the Great Reset. That's really what is happening with regard to a very stated agenda by various people in power called the Great Reset. And it's just one version of things that have happened throughout history. uh, When in a sense, mankind has sought to establish a new paradise on earth, but a paradise without God. It's the pursuit of heaven on earth, paradise on earth, but without God. And yet the book of Revelation is very much about the establishment of a new paradise on earth, but with God. And one of the interesting things about the quote from Barry Goldwater is, he says, when man tries to establish a paradise on earth without God, they actually create the most hellish of tyrannies. That in their pursuit of heaven without God, they create hell. And yet God, when he pursues paradise on earth, he creates heaven on earth. And so all of that kind of plays into what I hope you'll see in these chapters because there's a mystery um, that theologians have talked about, the mystery of evil. And people wrestle with all the evil that takes place in this world. And they ask, how can a God who is all-powerful and all-loving, ordain so much evil, permit so much evil, whatever term you want to use. And there's a mystery in it because the reality is, based on these chapters, I think we'll see, the idea is that God uses even hellish tyrannies to bring heaven on earth, which is truly an amazing thing. How God works as he does. So what I want to sort of emphasize in various ways this morning with the time that we have is, in light of what I just said, God uses unexpected and unwanted things like tyranny, like death, like suffering to bring about the expected and the wanted. And you'll see in this chapter that John really wants God to do what he plans to do. And then we see all kinds of things that John might think of as being unexpected and unwanted. But in all of that, when people are are tempted to see the evil that takes place in the world and come to the conclusion that God is evil, come to the conclusion that God is unkind, the truth is God is too kind to ever be cruel, but he is so kind that he would rather be mistaken as unkind than to actually be cruel. And so God doesn't have a problem with, in one sense, being thought of as cruel if he's really being kind. And our temptation is to think that because of the evil in the world that God is cruel, when really he's being more kind to us than we realize. And so I believe Revelation 5 and 6 uh, talks about that. The Bible talks about it in all kinds of ways, but these chapters highlight it for us as well. And so uh, chapter 5 and chapter 6 talk about the seals, the seal judgments, as they're called. And so what I'd like to do is kind of just uh, work our way through these two chapters. They fit together. didn't seem appropriate to divide them. And so that's why we're going to uh, take them both this morning. And so if you would, look at the very beginning of uh, Revelation chapter 5. And it begins with a discussion of a book. In verse 1 it says, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back. Sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. So here in these first verses we have. God, the Father, is pictured here sitting on a throne and in his right hand is a book written on both sides of the paper. And yet it's sealed uh, up with seven seals, which means it could not be opened and read and you could not see what's in it without those seals being opened and broken. And yet they ask the question, who is worthy to break the seals? Who's worthy to open the book so that we can see what is going on? To come, and there 's been all kinds of ideas of, about what this book might actually actually be, um, and they 've been expressed in different ways, but I think the bottom line is in light of what we see you know when the book is opened in light of the rest of revelation, one way to see it is it tells us how God is going to bring about the consummation of all things, how God is going to uh, conclude and bring to the, its ultimate conclusion the result of all that has been accomplished through his son. Jesus came the first time, but he's coming again. Jesus accomplished all that needed to be accomplished for the redemption of his people and for the renewal of this world. And yet there are still people to be redeemed and there's still a world to be renewed. And so what is going to happen in order for that ultimate fulfillment to take place. And so I believe that's why John is weeping when there's nobody, at least not yet, who has stepped forward to open the book. He's weeping because he realizes this is uh, everything that his heart longs for, that all that he longs to see happen in light of his faith in Jesus is tied up in that book. And yet it's not being opened. At least that's the way he's experiencing it, it seems, and so we see uh, this situation is like um, a little boy who gets an ice cream cone, and he's kind of walking away, and all of a sudden something startles him, and the, the ice cream cone falls, the ice cream falls off the cone and hits the ground, and he starts to cry. Why? Because his hopes are dashed. All of a sudden, he had hope in that ice cream, and now it's, it's gone. and, and John has great hope when he's taken into the throne room of heaven to be able to see how God is going to finish all that Christ accomplished and bring in heaven on earth. And yet, all of a sudden, he begins to weep that, well, maybe this isn't going to happen. At least that's the experience or the implication of it. And that's why um, to think about what's in this book is important because it highlights the fact, on the one hand, that there is a book. There is a plan that God has ordained what is going to happen and that that plan is very much about bringing heaven to earth. And yet, it's a book that can only be opened by someone who is worthy. Only someone who is worthy. So which means that if, as we continue to read on, we find out Jesus is the one who opens the book, we realize through this passage that um, Jesus reigns worthily over all things. That he, he is in a place in which he is worthy to be. There are a lot of people in power that we're not so sure they ought to be there. We're not so sure they're worthy of being there for all kinds of reasons. The Bible says Jesus rules and reigns over everything, and he rules and reigns over everything worthily. And he is in charge of history. Um, And history is unfolding, it's not unraveling. I think I've shared before there was, I don't know if it was a family time we were having, but it seems like many years ago we were having a family time and something happened along these lines. David began to talk about how uh, his day was unraveling as opposed to unfolding. And I love that um, mistake, I guess, of terms. I think he meant unfolding, but he said unraveling. Because I think that's the way most of us feel a lot of the time. We feel like our days are unraveling. We feel like our life is unraveling. We feel like our country is unraveling. We feel like history is unraveling. But the reality is, it's unfolding. And that is what we see happening in the book of Revelation Jesus is picturing for his people the reality that, no, history is not unraveling. Our country is not unraveling. Things are unfolding because Jesus rules and reigns over it all. Look at the next verse, uh, verse 5. It says, And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And so you've got God, the father on the throne. You've got the elders, which I believe represents Uh, in angelic form, the people of God. You've got the four living creatures that represent, I believe, in angelic form, all of creation. So God rules and reigns over all creation. God rules and reigns over his people. And then you have this interesting situation where uh, John is told to stop weeping because the lion of Judah is going to open the seals. He's worthy to open this book and to let you know how God is going to bring heaven to earth. And yet, when the lion appears, he doesn't appear as a lion. He appears as a lamb. And not just a lamb, but as a lamb that has died and yet lives. That's the way he appears. And he says, the lion is overcome as a lamb who was slain. Which is huge when it comes to understanding what overcoming really means. And so you have this picture of Christ being pictured as the lion lamb. And so what does that mean? Um, Obviously, you've got C.S. Lewis who talked about Aslan as the lion in the Chronicles of Narnia. And he says uh, that uh, Aslan is not a tame lion, but he's good, which means you can't control him Uh, He's in charge, you're not, but he's good. He's a lion lamb, so to speak. He's so good that he would lay down his life for his people. And so the picture of a a lion, it goes back to Genesis 49, 9 and 10, where it talks about Judah as a lion's whelp. He lies down as a lion, and as a lion, uh, who dares rouse him up? The picture of a lion is something or someone um, you should fear, If that lion is not on your side or if you're not on his side. But if he is your lion, then he will defend you. And he will make sure that your enemies do not have the victory over you. And that's why in the Old Testament, they, they longed for a great king. Because they saw the king as someone who would defend them and fight their battles and overcome their enemies and make sure they had what they needed and that's the picture of power and might and strength and everything that we need in the lion, Jesus. But he's also pictured as a lamb, just like in John 1.29, where John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So that no, not only is Jesus the Lion King, but also the Lamb Savior. Which means he rescues us from ourselves. He rescues us from our sin. He rescues us from evil and suffering. And how does he do it? By substituting himself in our place. He lives a life we can never live. He dies the death we deserve to die. And he rises from the dead. And for all those who entrust themselves to him, he becomes their king and their savior. He will fight on their behalf And he will rescue them from the penalty they deserve from sin. And he will enable them to enjoy the heaven on earth that is promised. Jesus reigns as a lion lamb, which means he is the perfect combination of characteristics uh, so that he is the perfect ruler over all things. The one on the throne of the universe is the lion lamb. And especially from here on out, it speaks of him as a lamb, the lamb on the throne, that kind of thing. And so Jonathan Edwards would talk about how, um, it's, it's interesting how those two different pictures are meant to come together to show us the glory of Christ. And the way he puts it is, he says, the lion and the lamb, though very diverse kinds of creatures, yet have each their peculiar excellencies The lion excels in strength and in the majesty of his appearance and voice. The lamb excels in meekness and patience. Besides the excellent nature of the creature as good for food and yielding that which is fit for our clothing and being suitable to be offered and sacrificed to God. But we see that Christ is in the text compared to both because the diverse excellencies of both wonderfully meet in him. Then think about what he says. This is the application. If Jesus is the lion lamb as described... So what? He says, Let what has been said be improved to induce you to love the Lord Jesus Christ and choose him for your friend and portion. As there is such an admirable meeting of diverse excellencies in Christ, so there is everything in him to render him worthy of your love and choice and to win and engage it. Whatsoever there is or can be desirable in a friend is in Christ. And that, to the highest degree, that can be desired. So what does Jonathan Edwards say? He says, this picture of Christ as lion and lamb is meant to picture him as the greatest, most wonderful person you could ever know and to induce you to choose him as your friend, to entrust yourself to him, to submit to him as your Lord and to embrace him as your Savior says, you can't have a better Lord, you can't have a greater Savior than the one that you find in Jesus. He is worthy to reign over history and he's worthy to be your friend. More worthy than we know. Look at verse 8. He says, when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense. Note, like we said earlier, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, "'Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders And the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing and every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. So here we see what you might call, what theologians have called the history of redemption, so to speak. We see uh, Christ, the Lion Lamb, ruling over history. And what is he ruling over history for? for? The salvation of souls. Because it says that you are worthy to take the book and break its seals. Why? Because you were slain. It's not just because you are God, even though that's part of it, but because you were slain and because you purchased in your being slain men from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. That means the history that is being ruled over is the history of redemption, of God redeeming a people for himself. And the reason why Christ is the one who opens the seals is because the history that's going to unfold is all about the glory of God and the salvation of sinners. And so the one who is worthy to open it is the one who has purchased sinners by his shed blood. And so what we see here is Christ ruling and reigning for the salvation of his people, the ones he died, all those who trust in him. Now, there are different ways... um, to think about the seals that are going to be broken. And some people see it one way, some people see it another. I see it in light of um, what Christ in Matthew 24 calls the birth pangs, where there are things that are going to happen in history before the end. And then there are going to be some things that happen before the end that warn us that things are coming to a close. And then there are going to be things right at the end that are very much wrapped up in the return of Christ. And so what I believe is happening here is the opening of the seals is things that are going to play out in history and that Christ is going to rule and reign over these things in order to bring history to its consummation and bring heaven on earth. And so if you would look at uh, the first part of uh, chapter 6, In chapter 6, it says, verse 1, Then I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying, as with a voice of thunder, Come. I looked, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. So Christ, the Lion Lamb, is ruling over history. He's ruling over the salvation of all those who trust him, his people. And he's beginning to open the seals on this document that ultimately refers to how God is going to usher in heaven on earth and fulfill all that Christ accomplished when he came the first time. And the first seal talks about a white horse and a rider on the white horse who has a bow. And he goes out has a crown as well, and he goes out conquering. Now, there's no doubt that revelation and all prophecy is challenging, and there are different ideas about what this could be. And maybe one of the best ways to understand this is to think about it in terms of one of Christ's parables. In the parable of the wheat and the tares, Um, which you can actually see that in Matthew 13. Jesus tells a story about a man who plants good seed in his field for wheat. But then an enemy comes and plants bad seed in that field, plants tares. And the um, servants of this man come to him and say, so what are we going to do? We found tares among the wheat. Should we rip up the tares and get them out of the way? And what the man says is, he says, No, for while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, to gather the wheat into my barn. So there's an issue, or it's the picture, excuse me, of both wheat growing and tares growing at the same time. And... The disciples come to Jesus later on and say, could you explain what that story is all about? And this is what he says. The one who sows the good seed is the son of man, and the field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers are angels. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So on the one hand, you've got the kingdom of Christ in the world that is including both wheat and tares. And then the end of the age comes and the tares are taken out and the wheat become, or the sons of the kingdom, enjoy the kingdom of the Father forever and ever. But the point that I want to make is, it says, allow both to grow together. And so there are some who look at this first horse and say, I think that's the rise of the Antichrist. I think that's the rise of Satan's kingdom. I think that's the rise of evil men conquering other men. Well, it could be that to one degree or another, and it probably is that to one degree or another in light of what Christ said about what things are going to look like before we get to the harvest at the end. But there's also the issue of wheat growing. And so I think that there are those, like uh, many of the Puritans would look at this and say, this is actually about... Christ in his kingdom growing, that it's a picture of Christ conquering, that he's the one, he's the Lion Lamb who overcame through his life and death and resurrection and through the preaching of the gospel of that achievement, he overcomes the sinfulness in man's heart and his kingdom grows and it goes from just being a little mustard seed to fill the earth at some point. And so that's why I think ultimately and most importantly, it not only refers to men conquering men and even Satan's kingdom growing in some sense like the tares, but most importantly, it's a message of hope that in all these things, the progress of the gospel is going to be seen. And whatever stands in the way of God through Christ saving his purchased people, it will be overcome. God in Christ will be satisfied with what has been achieved through Christ and it will not be thwarted. Look at verse 3, the second seal. It says, When he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come, and another, a red horse, went out. And to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth and that men would slay one another. And a great sword was given to him. Now, this seal is very much about human conflict. You could say it. it's as big as wars, um, but even as small as murders and human conflict of, of various kinds. And there would be those who would say, see, that makes total sense in terms of if uh, the first seal is about uh, men conquering other men, or if the first seal is about um, Satan's you know, rise and the rise of the Antichrist, it makes sense that we would see Uh, this kind of red horse riding through and there being all kinds of human conflict. But if indeed the Puritans are right, that the white horse is ultimately and most importantly talking about the progress of the gospel and the ushering in of the kingdom, then it says that human conflict is going to be part of the progress of the gospel. It's going to be part of God ushering in heaven on earth. And so what we see here is the reality that we're concerned about what's going on in the world, right? We're we're concerned about what's happening with Russia and Ukraine. Because our David is over in Okinawa, we're concerned about what's going on between China and Taiwan. And so we, we get concerned about human conflicts on big scales and on smaller scales. But we have to remember that From God's perspective, it's all part of his plan to usher in heaven on earth and to redeem a people for himself. Which brings us to the third seal. If you look at verse 5, he says, When he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, Come. I looked, and behold, a black horse... And he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. And do not damage the oil and the wine. So what we have here is a picture of economic hardship. And obviously in light of the previous seal with war and conflict, that's oftentimes the result of war and conflict is economic hardship. Uh, pictured it as... Um, you know, famine or things like that. Um, And the Bible talks about toward the end that that would be the case. Um, Just this week, uh, we went to a restaurant and um, I asked for a drink and they said, I'm sorry, uh, we can't serve any drinks right now because of uh, supply chain issues. And so who's in charge of that? I'd like to see the manager, you know? Well, ultimately, um, God's in charge of supply chain issues. He's in charge of economic hardships. He's ordained those things. Why? Because he's saving a people for himself, and he's ushering heaven on, in on earth. He's, he's got a plan, and all those things are part of it, which means that Jesus reigns over human conflict of all kinds, And Jesus reigns over economic hardship of all kinds. That doesn't mean in and of themselves they're good, but it does mean that he uses all those things to bring about the good that we desire. Just like I said, God uses unexpected and unwanted things to bring about the expected and the wanted. What we want is heaven on earth. What we want is God to meet all our needs and to satisfy our souls. And he says, yes, and that's what I'm doing even through unwanted and unexpected things, even like uh, things like human conflict and things like economic hardship, which is what the black horse represents. And if you go on to the fourth seal, as we see in verse seven, it says, when the lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, come, I looked and behold an ashen horse or a pale gray horse. And he who sat on it had the name death and Hades was following with him. Authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beasts. So here we have the ashen horse with its rider, which has the authority to kill. And it's a picture of death of all kinds. It mentions death by sword, famine, pestilence, wild beasts. We've already talked about sword in terms of uh, the second seal, we've already talked about famine with regard to the third seal. And now it's just talking about death in general from all different kinds of uh, ways and and uh, through all kinds of situations. And it's highlighting the fact that D- Jesus, the lamb who gave his life for the sin of the world, rules over death of all kinds. And there's an interesting verse In Revelation 9, verse 6, where it says, And in those days men will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die and death flees from them. Think about that. In those days men will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die and death flees from them, which means you can't even kill yourself unless God allows you to. He rules and reigns over death. That's what that means. They seek death, but they can't find it. Which implies that I want to die, I'm going to try to take my life, but we're not even in charge of our our death. We might think we are. and There have been plenty of people who have tried to take their lives and God didn't allow them to do that. And so Jesus reigns over all kinds of death. And so he even has a purpose in it. And it does involve the salvation of men, and bringing heaven to earth. Well, there's a one in, in particular kind of death that is highlighted in the fifth seal. In verse 9 it says, When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true! will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. And so the fifth seal talks about Christians dying. So the fourth seal talks about the death of people in general. The fifth seal talks about the death of believers in particular. And they're pictured, uh, those who have died for the sake of Christ, are pictured as being under the altar. They've been sacrificed for the sake of Christ, so to speak. And they're asking the Lord how long before judgment happens on those who have taken our lives? How, How long before justice happens? You know, that's a God-given desire, the desire for justice. Uh, When we are uh, sinned against terribly, we desire justice to take place. God simply says, that's not a wrong thing, but just make sure you understand I'm the one, I'm the only one who knows how to exercise that justice properly. So you show mercy um, and let me determine whether or not justice should come into play or whether or not I'll show mercy as well. And so the picture here is the death of saints and they're told to wait for God to bring justice at the end of time. And he says the reason that they need to wait is that that there are more believers who need to die. That there's a number of Christians who will die for their faith. And that before the end comes, the full no- number of Christian martyrs will be fulfilled. And it just reminds us of the fact that Jesus reigns over the death of his people. There won't be one more that dies or one less that dies at the hands of a world that hates Christians than God intends. He's sovereign over the death of his people. And the Bible says in Psalm 116, as you might remember, a very comforting verse for all of us in light of whatever death we might face. It says in Psalm 116, uh, 15, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his godly ones. Precious in the sight of the Lord. And I believe that's why, one reason why this seal is talked about, Jesus isn't just over ruling over all deaths, but he's especially ruling over the death of his people and the suffering of his people because we are precious to him. And then the sixth seal uh, in verse 12 says, I looked when he broke the sixth seal and there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair and the whole moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? There's a sense in which this seal is a response to the former seal. Uh, The saints underneath the author say, How long, O Lord, before you avenge our death and bring justice where it needs to come? This seal talks about God bringing justice. The pictures that we see here in this uh, seal, a great earthquake, the sun becoming black, the moon becoming like blood, stars of the sky falling, all of that is actually in the Old Testament and it's pictured in terms of Temporal judgments. It's as a figurative way of talking about how God shakes things up and brings judgment on people and nations. He exercises his justice temporally before the ultimate end. But all of those temporal judgments point to the ultimate judgment. They let us know that God is not someone who just winks at sin. That God hates sin. God hates injustice. God hates... Um, people murdering his people. He isn't indifferent to that. And there are temporal judgments that God does throughout history. And it points to the ultimate judgment that God will bring at the end. And what is interesting is that it says at the end of this passage in verse 16 that people in a sense are crying um, for the mountains and hills to fall on them and to hide them from what? The wrath of the Lamb. The wrath of the one who laid down his life. The wrath of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What does that mean? That means if Christ offers you mercy and you reject it, then the only alternative is justice, is wrath. Jesus is an able and willing Savior for sinners. But if we reject that offer of mercy, then the only alternative is justice. And the lamb is also the lion who will judge his enemies, those who refuse to receive the offer of mercy. And that's why we proclaim the gospel, to tell people that Jesus is an able and willing Savior for you. Turn from your sin and trust yourself to him. He will forgive you all of your sins and he will usher you into heaven on earth. But he's also a lion who will judge his enemies who refuse to receive his mercy because there's no alternative. It's either mercy or it's justice because God has to punish sin to be a just God. But it is his heart to show mercy. And that's what we proclaim in the gospel. And so we see that reflected in uh, this passage. Jesus reigns over temporal judgments and he will reign over the final judgment as well. Well, we're not going to read chapter seven, but chapter seven is an interlude between the sixth seal. And you remember, we're talking about seven seals. So the seventh seal hasn't been unfolded yet. But chapter seven is very much about how God has a protected number of people, a fixed number of people, a countless number of people, and a blessed number of people. That he is going to protect and save through all of these unexpected and unwanted things. Death is an unwanted thing. Uh, Economic hardship is an unwanted thing. War and conflict And pain and suffering, these are unwanted things. But God says, if you read chapter 7, my people do not be afraid because I'm going to protect you and provide for you and I'm going to see that you make it to heaven on earth. And indeed, I'm going to see to it that countless numbers of people, a countless multitude of people uh, enjoy the benefits of the mercy of the Lamb and are a part of the great celebration that will be through eternity. And so we can see through chapter 7 that God is at work through the reign of Christ over all things to protect and save and satisfy a multitude of people for the glory of his great name. And then we don't see what ch- um, the seventh seal is about until we get to chapter 8. And I'll go ahead and read that as we wrap things up. Verse 1 says, When the Lamb spoke, excuse me, broke the seventh seal... There was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden censer and much incense was given to him so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints. Remember again, what we said earlier, add it to all the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar, which was before the throne and the smoke of the incense, and the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand And then it goes on from there. And so the seventh seal, I believe, is ultimately about warning. It it talks about the warnings that are going to come right before Christ comes back. But I think it also is highlighting the fact that throughout history, God has warned people. Um, If you think about um, what it says in Luke 13... There are people that come to Jesus and say, you know, what do you think about that tower that fell on the people in Siloam? Or what do you think about Pilate mingling the blood of these worshipers with their sacrifices? And Jesus said, um, if you don't repent, the same thing will happen to you. It's basically what he said. Which, is a, which means there are things that are happening in our own day and time that are warning us of the ultimate judgment that are calling us to repentance. And that's why also in Revelation 9, in light of the trumpet judgments, it says in verse 20, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands. So the idea of the trumpet judgments, whether it's temporally or ultimately at the end, are meant to call people to repentance, call people to turn to God for the forgiveness of their sins and to entrust themselves into the hands of a merciful lamb who reigns on the throne of the universe. Well, let me bring this to a close. One of the things that I mentioned earlier on is that people look at the kinds of things that are talked about in the seals, uh, economic hardship, uh, death, uh, wars, all kinds of pain and suffering, and they look at that and they say, doesn't that mean that God is evil or God is cruel to allow those things? How could God be good and loving and ordain all these things? Isn't that cruelty? Uh, I'm reading through Genesis again at this point, and um, I asked the question as I read about the story of Joseph. Was God cruel to Joseph? Joseph, uh, if you remember the story, Uh, He's about 17 years old and he gets sold into slavery by his own brothers. And he's enslaved in Egypt for 13 years. And he goes through all kinds of suffering in that time before he is elevated to rule over Egypt. And so the question is, was God cruel to Joseph? And Joseph would say, no. No. God was not cruel to me. You look at what Joseph says about the situation. In chapter 45, he tells his brothers, Now, do not be grieved or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. Now, did they do a cruel thing? You bet they did. And he acknowledged, you sold me into slavery. You did a cruel thing to me. But God did a loving thing. God was sending me Ahead. Why? To preserve life. Whose life? Their lives. The ones who did the cruel thing to him. That's the amazing thing. The very ones who are being cruel, God is using their cruelty to show them grace. And so the cruel things that we might see in this list of seals are things that we need to understand is actually God's kindness to us. It's a great quote that I shared with our small group a few weeks back that I'd like to share with you too, where Spurgeon talks about this, and he says this, "'I, the preacher of this hour, beg to bear my witness that the worst days I have ever had have turned out to be my best days. And when God has seemed most cruel to me, he has then been most kind.'" If there is anything in this world for which I would bless him more than for anything else, it is for pain and affliction. I am sure that in these things the richest, tenderest love has been manifested to me. Our Father's wagons rumble most heavily when they are bringing us the richest freight of the bullion of his grace. Love letters from heaven are often sent in black-edged envelopes. The cloud that is black with horror is big with mercy." Fear not the storm. It brings healing in its wings. And when Jesus is with you in the vessel, the tempest only hastens the ship to its desired haven. Do you hear what he's saying here? He says, When I thought or felt or imagined that God was being most cruel to me, he was being most kind. And those situations in which I had much pain and affliction were actually the richest, tenderest love I've ever experienced. It is so important that we understand that when those seals are broken and all those cruel things are ordained, it's ordained by the hand of the most loving person in the world. And he ordains it not because they're cruel, but because it's kind. Maybe it's kind in ways that are a mystery to us. Maybe it's kind kind in ways we don't understand, but it's truly his kindness. And it's his kindness that leads us to repentance, leads us to him day in and day out, as it says in Romans chapter 2. And that's why it's so important for us to believe that God uses unexpected and unwanted things to bring about the expected and the wanted. And that he's too kind to ever be cruel. But he is so kind that he would rather be mistaken as unkind than to actually be cruel to us. Psalm 145, 17 says, The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his deeds. Won't you choose him for your friend? In fresh and new ways today, even if you already have, know that he's the best friend you could ever have. He's the best friend you do have. And we worship him today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word that is meant to encourage us, to encourage us as your people, to not be afraid, and to to know that even things that are hard and might even appear to be cruel are really your kindness to us and your kindness to others, meant to turn us to you and turn others to you, that we might find in you all that we need. And for those who aren't trusting in you today, all that we've talked about is meant to encourage them to do exactly what Jonathan Edwards says, to choose Christ as their friend, which means to embrace him as their savior and to submit to him as their Lord. And I pray that anyone here who has not yet done that would do that today and know that there could be no better friend than Jesus no greater Savior, no more wonderful Lord. And we praise you and thank you today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.